1: Throughout the Middle East, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Libya, none of these countries can even sustain a state because they're all consumed by local, ethnic, religious, tribal identities. And this is a problem that East Asia just has not had to worry about in several centuries. And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk.
2: In my spiel at the beginning of the last podcast, I talked about some of the changes which I think will not happen after this pandemic. I argued that we will not stop having a social life, but there will still be plenty of restaurants and bars and parties in the months and years after we have finally gotten this pandemic under control. And I also expressed some skepticism about the extent to which it will For example, stop or reduce the course of globalization. Today, I want to do something different, which is to talk about some of the changes which will happen. Basically, it seems to me that it makes sense to think of them as falling into three basic categories. The first category is small yet significant changes. So it will likely be true that some essential goods are now produced at home rather than abroad, that will alter the nature of globalization, even if it will not stop or reverse it. The second is the acceleration and the reinforcement of existing trends. I have two in mind in particular. One, we've all been talking about for many years now, uh, the potential of teleworking has become obvious. It's become clear that some workers are more productive if they're able to work at home. Well, the fact that a lot of white-collar heavy companies and organizations have been able to do amazing work over the last months under the most difficult circumstances, where people are stressed out by the pandemic, where they might have to do childcare at home, uh, shows the potential of telework and it might accelerate a shift towards it. Another area that is more geopolitical stems from an article that I wrote in Foreign Affairs a couple of years ago with Roberto Foa. We showed at that time that democracies were more Economically powerful than autocracies for the whole of the long 20th century. Well, as of one or two years ago, autocracies were starting to be richer, to have a larger economy than democracies. And there's good reason to think that this pandemic will accelerate that shift as countries like China are already emerging from their pandemic. This will certainly change geopolitics. But again, It is just a reinforcement, an acceleration of existing trends. The third category is more speculative, but potentially very significant. It consists in the fact that past pandemics have brought about giant changes, like the end of feudalism in the wake of the Black Death, but not in the way that contemporaries knew to expect. So if there are truly world-shattering changes from this pandemic, if we will remember COVID-19 as a turning point in world history, as so many people are saying, I think it's likely to come in a similarly roundabout way. It will be through combinations of causal factors, through perhaps counterintuitive consequences, that we are unlikely to be able to predict. Speaking of people who are famous for their predictions, I'm very honored to have back on the podcast for a second time Francis Fukuyama. Fukuyama is, of course, most well-known for his prescient essay on the end of history, published not after the fall of the Berlin Wall, but in the summer of 1989. But he is most significant, I think, for a lot of the work he has done since, especially for the deeply insightful two-volume books on political order he has been thinking very hard about what the coronavirus will mean for the future shape of our economy of our democracies for the prospects of individual freedom and collective self-determination and i think the conversation we had speaks for itself francis fukuyama welcome to the podcast thanks very much
1: for having me yasha
2: so you're somebody who clearly has a special ability a special skill at understanding moments when the trajectory of history is changing. You were one of the first people to really think through some of the implications of the weakening of the communist regimes in Eastern Europe. Your most famous article, The End of History, was published before the fall of the Berlin Wall, and before it was so obvious that the Soviet Union would collapse. Is the coronavirus epidemic we're living through at the moment of comparable historical importance? Is this the biggest caesura in world history since 1989? Or as some people have been saying since 1945? Or do you think that's an overstatement of the stakes of this moment?
1: I think that it's very likely that it will go down as one of the really big turning points because it really, I think, will mark the end of this period of intense globalization. And possibly also mark really an acceleration of what many people have been anticipating previously, which is a shift of power away from the United States towards East Asia, towards China, towards other parts of the world. However, I would say that as in all of these earlier turning points, it's extremely difficult to predict what the downstream consequences would be. I just think that if you look at these prior moments and crises, it would have been impossible to predict, for example, that the financial crisis in 2008 would ultimately lead to the rise of populism in the United States and the election of someone like Donald Trump. I mean, that's something scarcely anyone could think of at the time. So being much more specific other than saying, yes, I believe that our children will remember this uh, very vividly, you know, where they were, what they were doing during the shutdown, I think that, that, there's very little question that that will happen.
2: The best historical example for an infectious disease or a pandemic that really had a huge impact on world history was probably the Black Death. According to some historians, at least, it helped bring about the end of feudalism in a number of Western European countries. Now, the thing that makes me a little bit skeptical about using that as a precedent for today is that the nature of the predictions people make about that time and today is very different, which is to say that feudal lords in the Middle Ages did not abolish feudalism because they looked at this terrible disease that had ravaged their country and they decided the system was irrational and the poor peasants were being ill-treated. It was because the labor supply was radically shortened and so peasants were much better able to negotiate with their feudal overlords and they were able to push for an end to feudalism in that way. Today, when people say, look at this pandemic, it shows that just in time production mechanisms are not very irrational. It demonstrates the degree to which globalization has become a problem. Uh, They sort of assume that we will look at the world, recognize uh, what at least they see as the obviously irrational elements in it, and then work together in order to fix them. That just doesn't seem to me how history works or how the social world works. In particular, the big problems of collective action will still hold even after COVID-19. So let's say that all CEOs of major companies somehow decided that just-in-time production is irrational because eventually a big crisis might come about and throw them into uh, real difficulties. It will still be the case that each of those companies needs to sell products in the next quarter and the quarter after that, and that the first company to bring that production to more costly countries is likely to have to raise the prices and lose customers and perhaps go bankrupt in the short run. That's a classic uh, problem of collective action in which you get collectively irrational outcomes due to individually uh, rational actions. So I guess my question to you is, how big of an impact should we expect this pandemic to have on globalization? Sure, certain essential goods will now be produced at home more often, but surely those goods are only a small percentage of the overall economy. So is that all of the change that's going to happen to globalization? Or do you think there really is a reason to anticipate a reversal of globalization, an end of globalization because of the coronavirus.
1: I wasn't arguing that globalization is going to end. I think that too much of our prosperity really depends on the existence of international trade and the ability to move goods and people and ideas across national borders. But I think that globalization itself wasn't this inevitable phenomenon. It was a series of policy decisions that rested on a certain intellectual framework. And I think it's that intellectual framework that is really going to see the first really big shift. I would say, for example, that the preceding period was really a period dominated by what's now called neoliberalism. And I have a very specific definition of what that is. It is not classical liberalism neoliberalism was a doctrine that was exemplified by a lot of the economists at the University of Chicago, like Milton Friedman or Gary Becker or George Stigler, who convinced a lot of people that the state itself was the primary obstacle to economic growth, and that if you wanted to restore the vigor and dynamism of national economies, what you had to do was open them up to as much competition as possible by getting rid of state regulation, privatizing companies, uh, and so forth. And that was not the dominant intellectual paradigm from the Great Depression on. I think people during the Great Depression had learned actually that that kind of unfettered market competition was actually dangerous, especially in the financial sector, that it underlay the the big disaster that happened in the 1930s and that governments really needed to play a much more powerful role. And I think many of our current ills actually can be traced to a lot of very highbrow, very sophisticated, Nobel Prize-winning economists giving policy advice that minimized the role of the state in economic life. And that obviously was related to the particular form of globalization that we pursued. So let me give you a couple of different examples of that. I think one of the most famous articles that Milton Friedman ever wrote was this article about how companies should not worry about what was called stakeholder value, that they should only worry about shareholder value. And this is now taught in almost every graduate school of business, certainly in the United States, that justifies a retreat from any kind of paternalistic capitalism that said yeah let's try to take it easy on our workers let's treat them as a family let's you know not squeeze every last little drop of profit that we can out of them out of our customers out of our supply chain and that was replaced by this extremely competitive ruthless form of capitalism And that is what I would call neoliberalism. It's the foundation of ideas like those articulated by Friedman, uh, played out by corporations around the world that would shift a plant to some distant country if they could squeeze a few extra cents of value out of that. And that's the period that I think is really ending, where I think a certain kind of resilience is going to take over. And it's manifesting itself in all sorts of ways. I think The U.S. and China are decoupling in a big way. I think that many people in the U.S. and in the West rightly have come to the realization that the degree of dependence on China that has evolved over the last two decades is dangerous. And as a matter of policy, we're just not going to let that continue.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? So I
2: take it that your opinion on this is that there's a lot of positive things about international trade and that we should strive to preserve those things. But at the same time, intelligent states would make sure in the coming years that they reduce their reliance on foreign trading partners, that they are able to produce more essential goods at home, and perhaps most importantly, that we have a change in the behavior of firms where they can actually take into account stakeholder values and other kind of things, uh, rather than having this mandate to maximize shareholder value at all costs. How do you think that change might come about? And how likely is it that it will?
1: I think that we're kind of experiencing the eternal return of the same because I think that fundamentally the basic things that have to be done are the ones that you articulated, that we have to take social protection much more seriously than we have over the last couple of generations, that states have to be more regulative in economic life and not let markets simply unroll without greater state uh, control. I think the real issue is not that, because, you know, I could spend a long time outlining what my ideal lessons from this whole set of crises would be. But... What happens typically is that the pendulum never goes far to one side and then comes back to rest somewhere in the appropriate center. It always overshoots. And we're suffering from the pendulum overshooting in the market direction during the 1990s and the early 2000s. And so now it's shifting back in the other direction. And I think you can see, you know, with the rise of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and then other left-wing groups in Europe that there's increasing political clamor for what I would regard as a excessive state action and a return to kind of really destructive sort of state intervention. Uh, so there's a difference between what I think I'd like to see and what I'm actually expecting to see.
2: What about the global shift of power between different countries and economies? One of the things that we've often seen in past crises is that they accelerate existing trends. And certainly for the last 20 or so years, American power and the functionality of the American state seem to be declining. While China obviously grew at an enormous rate and came to play a more and more important role In world politics, it would be tempting to now think that this pandemic might reinforce both of these trends in the United States. We've seen just a striking failure of state capacity, a striking failure of the American government to translate its theoretical assets into actually effective action on this pandemic. And I think that will not only weaken the American economy, which is still not on the way back, but also impose real reputational harm on the United States. On the other hand, it's at least possible to tell a story about China, where though it failed to contain the virus within the country, it managed to open up big parts of its economy again relatively quickly, even for some of the medical material it sent to Italy and other countries in Europe and around the world turned out to be faulty. Those ways of helping the country dominated the headlines for a little bit. So do you think that we will look back at 2020? As the moment in which there was a kind of change in global leadership in which China really arrived as one of the two primary powers, if not perhaps a preeminent power around the world? Or do you think that that narrative is far too simplistic?
1: Well, I think that in general you're going to see an acceleration of the shift of the world economy towards East Asia, but I would not say necessarily that it's going to be China that will be the single beneficiary of this uh, for a whole variety of reasons. I think that the kind of propaganda gains that the Chinese have been seeking in the last few weeks are actually not going to be that permanent. I think a lot of people can see that this is just a PR effort and that there is actually a fair amount of anger at China for having sat on this crisis and not been very transparent about it and so forth. And then furthermore, I think both in Europe and the United States, there is going to be this realization that this excessive dependence on China that we've allowed to develop over the last couple of decades is dangerous. It's dangerous for strategic reasons. And so I could see a lot of countries rethinking, should we really let Huawei build our 5G infrastructure and this sort of thing? But clearly, the part of the world that has been the most successful in containing the pandemic has been East Asia. But that includes Korea, Taiwan, Japan, Singapore, a lot of other countries in the region. So I think collectively, they will be the beneficiary. The story about the United States, you know, I hate to say it it really depends on us and how we react to all of this. I think that the single weakest part of the American system right now is its deep polarization. And if that polarization is not somehow overcome, it's going to be a continuing source of weakness. It means we can't agree on a budget, we can't agree on a response to a national pandemic. Everything is a matter of a kind of irrational allegiance to one's tribal identity rather than actually trying to learn from mistakes and that sort of thing. And until that underlying polarization goes away, I think The U.S. is going to be crippled as a global power. Now, we could get out of it. We could get out of it through an election. We could wake up one day and find that actually people have received such a shock that they're now willing to entertain very different ideas than they did the year before. But right now, unless we solve that, I think we are going to continue to decay and therefore weaken ourselves as a global
2: power. I want to make sure that we come to the United States and the divisions here, which I I think are very important to think through at the moment. Before we get there, I want to pick up on your thought about East Asia. A few people have been making that observation, and I think it strikes me as right and as very striking that whether you look at a democratic country like South Korea, a semi-democratic country like Singapore, or an autocratic country like China, they all seem to have been rather better at dealing with this pandemic than not every single other country in the world, but then most countries, uh, democratic or autocratic in the world. They've definitely done better than Iran and Russia and other autocracies, but they've also done better than the United States and Italy and other democracies. What's the explanation of that? I've heard some people allude to SARS and previous experiences of infectious disease in those countries. I'm not sure how convincing that is to me. Does it have deeper historical roots of the kind that you write about in political order and changing societies?
1: So that does get exactly to the point that I was trying to make in my political order books. You know, it's not just in this crisis that they've done better, but as a whole, uh, beginning in the post-war period, these Asian countries have gone from being third world countries to being fully modern industrialized countries in a much shorter time than any European country or the United States or Canada has succeeded in doing. And it's a stunning success story. And I think that there's a clear reason why it's happened there and not in Africa, not in South Asia, not in the Middle East. And that really has to do with the fact that all of these Asian countries had a state. I actually think that both in dealing with an epidemic and in dealing with economic development, you need a state and you need a modern state, meaning a state that is reasonably impersonal. And I think that that is China's largest historical legacy, that this is what I argued in The Origins of Political Order, that China was really the first world civilization to create a modern state. And that happened, you know, in 221 BC in the Qin Unification, when the first kind of bureaucratic empire was created. And that's really the dominant historical legacy of that part of the world. And, you know, having a state is not just a matter of having visible institutions like a bureaucracy. It also has to do with national identity, because if you don't have a clear sense of national identity that underlies your stateness, then, you know, the state itself is going to be contested. And so we see this throughout the Middle East, right, that Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Libya, I mean, none of these countries can even sustain a state because they're all consumed by local ethnic religious tribal identities and this is a problem that east asia just has not had to worry about in several centuries they were all consolidated nation states well before any european colonialists got to east asia this state legacy was interrupted by colonialism everywhere but in japan but you know japan was defeated and then occupied by the us but i think that the reason that they recovered as quickly as they did, and then have taken off in the second half of the 20th century, as fast as they did, was that they had state capacity at their beck and call. And I think that's what's continuing to help them in this current crisis.
2: So that is a very convincing explanation to me in terms of contrasting China to India or China to Kenya. I'm not sure it quite explains the differences between East Asia and Western Europe and North America, or it may help to explain the lacking response in a country like Italy, which did create a state very late and in incomplete ways. But when I think of France, when I think of the United Kingdom, when I think of the United States, those are places that have had a state for a long time, but today do have a pretty strong sense of national identity. And yet that state has seemingly proven less capable of dealing with a pandemic when countries from South Korea to Singapore to arguably, as yes, China. So why is it that the state capacity in a country like Britain or in a country like the United States, which looks so convincing on paper, turns out to be a paper tiger in the response to this pandemic?
1: Well, you know, this is where you get into this whole multivariate issue that I think that states are in some way a sine qua non of having an effective long-term response to any stress or emergency, but it's not enough in itself. You also have to have good leadership. You have to make the right decisions at the right time. And I think that if you are led by a populist who, for example, does not want to associate himself with any kind of failure and therefore tries to deny that the pandemic is real and ignores you know, the warnings of health professionals, you're not going to do as well. If you live in a polarized society where there's, no social consensus and a low degree of trust in the government, you're also not going to do well. So I think that having a state is a necessary but not sufficient condition for being able to deal with things in an effective way. I do think that there is a kind of negative correlation that populists, you know, in this crisis really don't seem to be doing well, again, because their judgment is clouded by the personal character of their rule, that they're so worried about their personal image, and the decision-making is so uninstitutionalized and focused on this one particular leader that they're much more likely to screw up than in a more institutionalized society where there are clearer rules for dealing with emergencies.
2: So let me put a question to you about the prospects of populism in this context, which I've asked a couple of guests in the last weeks and months, which is that I'm struggling with two different kinds of claims you could make about the impact of a coronavirus on populists. The first being that it might strengthen the narrative, that the idea that the world is a dangerous place, that you desperately need borders, that globalization was in key respects a mistake, seems a lot more plausible now than it did a year ago. And so perhaps that strengthens both the underlying appeal of a populist and in some countries like Hungary, it obviously allows them to just sweep aside the remaining checks on their power. Now, on the other hand, it is also turning out that from Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil to Donald Trump in the United States, some of those populists whose appeal was most based on saying, I'm going to protect you, I am the strong leader who can actually stand up for you, have struggled the most to actually protect the citizens and reduce the death toll and the economic damage from this terrible virus. And so it might become the moment, as I argued last year in Foreign Affairs, when the sort of popular story of legitimacy starts to crumble. How do you think these two different narratives match up? Are you relatively optimistic or pessimistic on this front?
1: You know, a lot of this has to do with cognitive issues. One of the things that has facilitated the rise of populism around the world is the rise of the internet and the cognitive scrambling of everybody's brain that has happened as a result of the internet. So, social learning is pretty much an elite driven phenomenon. You have a complex crisis like the one we're in now, or like the one that we faced in 2008, or the Great Depression. It's a very complicated thing. And you can tell all sorts of different stories about who's to blame and what policies worked and what didn't. But the way that actual social learning happens is that elites really have to be kind of in control of that narrative. So, for example, during the Great Depression, you started with a stock market crash in October 1929. The policies that the Hoover administration were following, which was a balanced budget and monetary-type money, were exactly the wrong solutions. But people didn't realize this for some time until you had the banking crisis in 1931. And then unemployment goes to 25% and a certain kind of reality sets in. But... The interpretation of that, I think, still remained in the hands of kind of elites. And fortunately, that was the case. So Ben Bernanke, who was a historian, an economist who was also a historian of the Great Depression, fortunately happened to be in control of the Federal Reserve at the time of the 2008 crisis. And so he could use his expert knowledge of that to guide the country to, I think, fairly good results. If Ron Paul had been the chairman of the Fed at that time, we would have had a completely disastrous result. We would have repeated the same mistake. And I think, unfortunately, what's happened is that with the rise of the internet, it's attacked elite control over these sorts of narratives and learnings. And that's the one thing that worries me about the future. The interpretation of a complex epidemic like this is actually pretty complicated, even for a very Sophisticated social scientists, and right now everybody's pouring over all of this data, and even basic facts about you know what's the infection rate, and you know what countries are undercounting, and, and this sort of thing. You know, we don't know, which means that you can impose all sorts of very weird narratives on top of the existing data. And one of the things that's happening right now is, on the right, people are saying, well, you know, there's only been well, it's funny, I mean, it's only twenty thousand, only. 50, 000, only 60,000, only 80,000, you know, deaths, but that's not as bad as traffic accidents or uh, this and that. And in order to counter that narrative, you know, you have to cite a counterfactual, which is if we didn't have lockdowns, the number would be five times as high, but you can't ever prove that to anyone. And so I think that because of this cognitive blockage that we've got right now, it's going to be harder for elites to actually regain control of the master narrative of what did we learn having gone through this pandemic. But not to leave it on a completely pessimistic note, you know, I do think that as in the case of the depression, you can have this increasing gap between reality and the way that reality is interpreted. And the tribal instincts that make you believe a wrong narrative are pretty powerful right now. But at a certain point, presumably the disjunction with the reality will get so bad that people will finally wake up one day and say, Ah, I guess we gotta have another narrative. I mean, in a way that's kind of what happened during the depression, but it took three years to get there. If, for example, states and countries that decide to open up early in the face of a lot of expert advice that they don't do this suddenly experience big jumps in their infection rates and then they're forced to close down again. Maybe that'll be enough to convince people that yeah, you know, maybe doing things out of ideology rather than listening to experts is not such a great thing. So I guess that's where I am in terms of trying to think through how this is going to work out for populism.
2: So that seems right to me. I mean, undoubtedly, there will be some super fans of populists like Donald Trump who are swayed by the argument that, you know, thanks to his great leadership, only in very large quotation marks, 100,000 people have died. But I think to most Americans and most subjects of populists around the world, that kind of argument is going to prove pretty unconvincing. I guess coming back to the question of state capacity, I'm torn about how much of a responsibility to ascribe to somebody like Donald Trump. Now, clearly, it is absolutely shocking that as we're recording this, there still isn't any kind of coherent federal response to the coronavirus. There doesn't seem to be any attempt to organize testing really at the federal level, any attempt to put a test and trace regime in place at the federal level, to have an effective way of ensuring that people are informed, that they've been in contact with anybody, even a way of making sure that people are quarantined in an effective way. And that is not just a shocking comparison to countries like South Korea. It's also a shocking comparison to countries like Germany, for example, and it really pains me in a deep way. So it would be tempting to look at the charlatanry and the incompetence of this administration and rest the blame with that. But I have two worries about whether that masks a deeper rot of state capacity. The first is that there does seem to have been a pretty lacking response from the CDC from the beginning, including the faulty tests that they developed, including an unwillingness to allow other people to create tests and so on. Now, perhaps it could have been remedied with political leadership, but it doesn't seem to be in the first instance a failure of political leaders making those mistakes. It seems to have been the institution itself to some extent. And the second thought I have is, you know, let's imagine that a man I deeply admire, Barack Obama, were president right now. I think without a doubt, the response from the administration would have been much more efficient and serious. But of course, the culture war would also have been even deeper. The rebellion against stay-at-home orders, the claim that this is some kind of plot in order to take away our American liberties, would have been much, much louder. And so in many ways, that could have created an equally bad situation. So if we manage to get rid of Donald Trump in, in the fall of this year, if we have a sensible and competent president that succeeds him... To what extent will that reestablish American state capacity, and to what extent is that certainly an improvement, but a relatively superficial improvement on the problems the country faces?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's been one of the chief issues that I've been looking at over the last several years. You know, we have a crisis in eroding state capacity, and this is something that way predates Donald Trump. Paul Volcker was the head of two Volcker commissions, one in the 1990s and the second one in the 2000s, where he looked at the state of the American civil service. And they're both very depressing reports that the civil service was aging. It wasn't able to attract due entrants. It was sluggish. It was over rigid. And that deterioration has been going on you know, for some time. So I was actually surprised at the poor performance of the CDC, but in retrospect, probably shouldn't have been because all of these federal agencies have been underfunded. This is a fact that a lot of Americans don't understand, but we have about the same number of full-time federal bureaucrats today than we did in the 1960s. and. What we've done is replace government workers with basically contractors at many different levels. So the amount of federal spending has increased by a factor of five, but we have exactly the same number of workers. And as a result, the performance of all of these agencies is deteriorating. And so I think that we need to fix this urgently. I've been thinking about making a move towards a kind of new Pendleton Act, new comprehensive civil service reform for some time now. But that, up till this point, has been one of the biggest losers of an issue you could imagine. Go to either political party and say, how about it? Their eyes glaze over, you know, because Americans just don't like bureaucrats. Now, I do think that we actually have an opportunity, if there's a Democratic administration, to start addressing this issue, because I think that everybody now recognizes that it really is a good thing to have, you know, lifetime experts that really have accumulated a lot of knowledge and can handle these complex situations in the government. And it really makes you want to cry. If you read Michael Lewis's recent book, The Fifth Risk, he basically goes through the transition from Obama to Trump. And it's kind of a celebration of these really bright spots in the American bureaucracy where You have these people that have been working steadily at their jobs, are incredibly skilled. They've saved thousands, if not millions, of lives from things, innovations that they've come up with. And they try to hand it over to the new administration. And the new administration doesn't care. They don't open the briefing books. They don't look at any of the past experience because they have this contempt for government. They send some 27-year-old kid whose only qualification is, you know, they worked on the campaign to run a very complex bureaucracy. So that part of it, I think, can be rectified quickly. But the deeper problems will take a long time. And this is actually one area where the Democrats actually bear a lot of the blame for that, because I think a lot of the rigidity in the system have to do with mandates that they have put in terms of hiring. A lot of it is driven by democratic-aligned public sector unions tenure rules and hiring rules and all sorts of things. But both parties are really guilty. So I do think that this is an issue that needs to be urgently addressed. And I'm hoping that, you know, this crisis will give us an opportunity to do that.
2: Let's turn to some of the core themes of this podcast, which is to think through the impact of the rise of populism on liberal democracy. We've touched on it a little bit in the context of corona. But I would love, in the fourth year of the presidency of Donald Trump, your assessment of just how much damage he has managed to do to the American political system and what that means for the prospects of democracy. So you wrote in 2016, or perhaps it was early 2017, that the election of Donald Trump was a kind of natural experiment, that it would allow us to understand just how stable American institutions are because they're going to be under a stress test that's unlike anything they've experienced in the recent past. Uh, How is that stress test going? What's the outcome of the natural experiment?
1: Well, you know, in a way, we don't have enough information to really answer that. And I think if you do have a democratic administration that comes to power in January, we will know better. But the real lasting damage, I think, really has to do with normative issues and the degree to which people return to respecting prior precedents. So, for example, this issue came up in a big way during the impeachment hearings, previous presidents have been willing to respect the will of Congress when being asked for documents, for example. So during the whole Nixon impeachment, I mean, he didn't get impeached, but in the whole lead up to that, the executive branch didn't just completely stonewall Congress and say, we're just not going to release anything, not a single document. And this is something that really began with Trump's refusal to release his tax returns, right? So then one of the questions is, if the shoe is on the other foot, Do the Democrats play by the same rules? They say, well, you know, last president did this, so why should we weaken ourselves by being any better? And if they do that, then I would say that's a really good example of permanent damage. The other thing has to do with political rhetoric. You already see this with a lot of mini-Trumps all over the country where they've taken to imitating him by taunting and belittling their opponents by using a lot of personal invective doing all this childish name-calling and insulting that he really revels in. And if that becomes a kind of permanent part of the rhetorical playbook that politicians use, then that's, I think, permanent damage. And then finally, I guess the most worrisome stuff is really within the judiciary. This past week, we've had this issue of Bill Barr overturning or rescinding the indictment of Michael Flynn who had actually confessed and pleaded guilty to the charges against him, against the wishes of his prosecutors, uh, for, I think, pretty blatantly political reasons. And again, the interesting test will be whether if the shoe is on the other foot and it's a Democrat now that's in the White House and is trying to shield himself or herself, whether they behave in a similar sort of manner and then try to use their control over the judicial system to protect themselves. But at the moment, I'm hoping that when that moment comes, things will have returned. I mean, something of the normative standards that we had enjoyed previously will come back into fashion. I think a Biden presidency certainly has an incentive to try to reassure people that they are going back to those standards. But, you know, you can never tell.
2: This is all under the assumption that somebody like Joe Biden gets elected, and that Trump remains a one-term president. And as you're pointing out, even then, there's real questions about whether there might be permanent damage from the four years of Trump. What happens if Trump gets re-elected? Do you think that the first four years should give us confidence that the American institutional setup could withstand another four years of that kind of full-frontal assault? Or are you worried, perhaps more worried, than you were three or four years ago, about what will happen to the rule of law and so on in this country then?
1: No, I think in a second term, it'll be much, much worse, much, much worse, because he has tested so many limits in the first term that if he is reelected, I think that he will feel free then to exercise all of these different powers and policies that he's wanted to do but has been restrained from doing. And he'll just say, well, the American people reelected me and therefore that's all the authority that I need to do that. You know, you saw a little bit of this behavior beginning after his quote-unquote acquittal by the Senate in his impeachment trial. Up till that point, he had been restrained in targeting the people that had testified against him. But once that happened, all these people like Alexander Vindman and so forth were all fired. He's been firing this string of inspector generals that have complained about the behavior of his administration. And I think that if he's reelected, that's going to get much worse. You know, one of the things that he threatened during the 2016 campaign was criminally going after his political opponents, right? He suggested that the Justice Department should indict Hillary Clinton, which I, right at the time, thought was probably one of the worst kinds of initiatives that a candidate could take, because, you know, that's what happens in a cheesy third-world dictatorship. You use the criminal justice system for your own political ends, and he clearly wanted to do that, and he was restrained from doing that. But, you know, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if there's a bitter election campaign. He manages to eke out a victory. And then the next thing we know is his attorney general indicts Joe Biden for something. Certainly Hunter Biden will be called on the carpet, but it could get a lot worse. And so I think that um, it's really the apocalypse if that were to happen. So I think the stakes here are extremely high for the future of American democracy.
2: Now, your thesis in the end of history was never, as some people who've only read the title and not the actual article in the book, seem to believe that there was no longer going to be any events in the world. But it was an expression of deep confidence in the idea that the core values of liberal democracy, individual freedom, and collective self-determination would continue to have a larger hold over the imagination of people than some of its competing values. And of course. That these countries would, in, in a way, be able to solve the internal contradictions better than others. If Trump is reelected, if we see the American system under that kind of deep strain, and at the same time, we see for all of the undoubted internal contradictions in that country, the continuing rise of China, its ability perhaps to deal with the coronavirus better than the United States, for that's too early to, to pass a judgment on. Would that be a real challenge to the
1: idea of? Oh, yeah, you bet. <laughs> I've said all along for several years that if China is able to sustain its record in terms of economic growth and social stability, and especially if the United States in comparison is really doing a lot worse, then yeah, uh, I think that ultimately that's going to be the final test of these systems. And if we fail in this comparison, then people are going to stop believing in the deeper legitimacy and superiority of liberal democracy.
2: Let's run with that for a moment. I mean, I think the one odd thing that protects the world from Chinese ideological hegemony is that it's a system that's so difficult to emulate. Now, of course, the American system has turned out to be much more difficult to emulate than idealists, or perhaps sometimes cynics at various junctures in human history have thought as well. You can't simply copy some you know, locally adapted version of the US Constitution and pop it down in various countries, and boom, you have a flourishing liberal democracy, that clearly doesn't work. But some of the underlying values are capable of sustaining political systems in countries from Japan to Germany to Australia and many other parts of the world. You know, the Chinese system is so baroque in a certain kind of way because it relies on this communist history, on a unitary party that has these communist origins, but are now very much state capitalist or whatever term you want to use for them. But it's very difficult to know what preeminence of success of China as perhaps 10 or 20 years from now the most powerful country in the world, in some ways the most functional country potentially in the world would mean. It's not as though even 20 years from now other countries could then say, well, we'll emulate China because if you don't have a communist party that's been around for 50 years but isn't really communist anymore lying around, it's very unclear how you even start to emulate China. So would that be a strange ideological? void where on the one hand the pull of liberal democracy has eroded but on the other hand there isn't actually an alternative model that countries can emulate what would that look like
1: well first of all i don't think that countries need to successfully emulate china (laughs) they just need to emulate it in the most macro characteristics which means strong government you know no free press no opposition this sort of thing so right now both Ethiopia and Rwanda have styled themselves as Chinese-style authoritarian developmental states. And they've had actually a certain amount of success in terms of economic growth. But they do not have anything like what the Chinese have. They don't have a disciplined party. The Ethiopian ruling party right now is completely riven by you know, ethnic uh, and factional differences. Rwanda doesn't even have a party, but that doesn't prevent them from saying that they're trying to follow the Chinese path because they've got a strong state that is directing economic investment, and that's enough for people. So I guess just to repeat, you don't have to successfully imitate China to make this a model that will be emulated in other parts of the world. I actually think that what's the most likely thing to happen is a sort of messy outcome. So what kind of a country is Hungary right now? Well, it's sort of democratic, it's capitalist, but it's kind of crony capitalist. There's a lot of corruption, there's very weak democratic institutions, it's got a kind of messy system. What model is it trying to emulate? Well, it's not clear that it's really emulating much of anybody, and I think a lot of the world could end up like this. I mean, we can't even put Putin's Russia in a clear category either, because it still holds elections of a sort, not free and fair, but it claims that it's democratic. It does have a certain constitution that Putin still thinks he's got to modify if he's going to stay on past at the end of his term. But again, it's not a clear, you know, alternative, much as Putin would like to say that his system is an alternative. So yeah, I think the world is just going to be a kind of messy place where you're not going to have anything like what we had during the Cold War, where you have a bifurcated choice between two very different kinds of political systems.
2: Adam Michnik has come up with a brilliant paradoxical phrase to describe the current Polish regime, which is anti-communism with a Bolshevik face. And there may be similar paradoxes to come in various parts of world history. I mean, populism in many ways is, you know, at least rhetorically sort of hyper-democracy, with an anti-democratic face, with an authoritarian face, mm-hmm. right? And you may oddly have capitalism with a communist face in China. So that's very interesting. That we may come to a moment where, if liberal democracy does fail in that kind of way, you simply have a period of practical regimes driven by the local power incentives. Often, probably quite cruel to the populations they rule, dressed up in any kind of convenient ideological clothes without much coherence. And those can persist for a very long time. Now, I take it that you continue to believe that that would be a great tragedy, that the world would be better off if liberal democracies managed to renew themselves. So I think I have two questions to end our conversation. We'll take them one by one. The first is, What can people do in order to make liberal democracies succeed, in order to help them both look decent and good and actually serve the citizens by comparison to those autocratic upstarts, and to make sure that they beat back their internal enemies in the form of these populist politicians who want to undermine those values?
1: Well, I think that given how important we've said state capacity is, a lot of countries need to fix that. You know, in Northern Europe, this is not a big problem, but in Southern Europe, and certainly in many developing and transitional countries, you know, corruption, uh, poorly trained civil servants, highly politicized governments tend to be much more the norm than the exception. This is true all over Latin America, for example. And so if you're actually going to... Make a case for modern democracy, it needs to be built on the foundation of a modern state. And so that's one area that needs a lot of attention. And as we were saying, I think we could use some of that in the United States as well. The other issue has to do with convincing people that liberal democracy is the ultimate solution to their problems. And I think that probably requires a different kind of rhetoric. You know, the reason that liberalism exists in the first place is that it's a way of governing over diversity. The idea of liberalism was really born after the European wars of religion in the 16th and 17th centuries that killed a large part of Europe's population. And at that point, people realized that if we're going to constantly be fighting over whether we're Catholic or Protestant, We're never going to get anywhere, so we need a framework in which religion retreats into private life, and we regulate our affairs without regard to, you know, these arguments over what the good life is. And modern societies are very diverse. That's one aspect of globalization where I don't think we're going to see much of a retreat. We are going to have to govern over diversity, and I think that liberalism in that respect still remains the only plausible way forward so that diverse populations can live with each other. There is an alternative, which is a form of communal democracy, like of the sort that they've got in Lebanon or Iraq, where everybody's just organized into parallel communities. And for obvious reasons, that's not very appealing. So I think there is still a strong case to be made for liberal societies. And Sometimes it has to get really bad before people understand that you know this is the least bad solution to this problem of living together
2: so you've actually eaten into my second question, which is why it is that we should remain committed to those values to liberal democracy. so let me slightly rephrase it, given how difficult it is for people to understand these values, given the extent to which often the argument becomes very plain and straightforward once you've lost those liberties to such an extent that it's very, very difficult to win them back. Should civic education, should trying to emphasize those values, to communicate those values, be a big part of what we're trying to do? Or is that a losing battle? To what extent is this an ideological battle? And if it is an ideological battle, how do we talk about those values in a way that ordinary citizens whose primary concern is not politics, who may never have lived through a period when autocratic politics was as salient as it was during the Cold War, might come to understand the importance of that concretely to their own lives.
1: Well, look, I'm actually not a big fan of civic education as a solution to America's problems. In general, it's a good idea to teach people about their own political systems I think Germany did that after 1945, you know, because they wanted to really educate people into a certain kind of liberalism, so they taught about the Holocaust and German war guilt and all of these other topics, and that actually worked, I think, pretty effectively. But I think if you tried to have a program of civic education based on liberal values in today's America it'll be preaching to the choir. You know, the only people that will really listen to that are going to be people that have those liberal values to begin with. And the other side is going to say this is just a conspiracy on the part of, you know, liberal elites to try to influence us and so forth. And so I think that the more likely changes are going to be sort of learning by example, that you need leaders that will embody a certain sense of national community that will emphasize national identity, but of a tolerant and democratic sort, and make that seem attractive through the ability to use narratives and symbols to make that appealing. I think that's really the only way forward. But civic education, I think, for us, isn't going to work.
2: Frank Fukuyama, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod.com. At gmail.com. This recording
1: carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.